A few years ago, I went to India and got to volunteer at this school in the Bati Mines outside of New Delhi. New Delhi is kind of like the New York of India. It's a very big, bustling metropolis. There's a lot of activity constantly going on all day and night. And that's where I arrived my first time going to India. I landed in the New Delhi airport by myself at 1 a.m. And my cell phone had died after the 20-hour flight from Austin, Texas to London to New Delhi. And I was supposed to find a driver, and I was supposed to look for somebody who had a turban and my name written on a card. And when I came out of customs and everything and got out of the airport, which was a pretty awesome airport, by the way, and outside of the main door, I saw maybe 60 men in turbans with signs that were difficult to read. And I had no idea what I was doing, where I was going. My phone was dead. I could not find a charger to plug in. And suddenly some guy was rushing over to me saying, come with me, come with me. So I figured, oh, this must be my driver, even though in hindsight, I know he had no idea what I looked like. And uh, it turned out this guy was just trying to get as much money out of me as he could. And he's like, oh, okay, here's a Westerner who's lost. And essentially, he wanted to give me a cab ride for about 200 US dollars, which a typical cab ride is maybe two to five US dollars, especially uh, short ones. And I was going on like a maybe 30 minute ride. So should not have been anywhere around 200 US dollars. But that's what he was trying to get me to pay. And uh, I talked him down. I said, hey, I'm just here to volunteer at a school. I don't know what, you know, I'm kind of lost. Uh, I think I'm going to this hotel. I said the name of the hotel. They ended up bringing me to someplace else that was a very close name. Long story short, I wound up at the right hotel finally about an hour later. And the whole ride, the driver was driving all over the road. There was no adherence to the signs or the uh, the markings on the road, nothing like in the United States. So all of this was just completely outside of my comfort zone and uh, very unnerving and unsettling to start my trip over here. It would have been much better if I had gone with a guide or met someone at the airport, uh, but it turned out the way it landed that I needed to go meet them at the hotel the next morning. And uh, that was how it all worked out. And ultimately, I ended up not having to pay all my money to the driver and uh, nothing bad happened. And ultimately, the next day, one of my guides said, well, the main thing that you learn when you go to India is surrender and trust in a higher power and just letting go and sort of enjoy the ride because it's quite different from the United States experience of being very linear and following the rules and the lines and staying in between the lines on the road, but also metaphorically and just in the way everything structure is structured there. It's very feminine and fluid and dynamic and changing. And there's this spirituality just infusing everything in India and everywhere you go, there's temples and there's Nag Champa and you see deities everywhere on people's walls and people's cars and tuk-tuks and you get on the road and it's just you just trust the driver and it, it's a very different experience than driving on the road in the u.s and i didn't drive there but i was driven around a lot and i had to really learn this surrender 
I'm going to be driving head on to another car and then a cow crosses the road and a, uh, this guy with this giant uh, barrel of things, he's riding across the road and a motorcycle with six people on it. You know, just constant explosion of activity and people everywhere for miles and go to the market and there's just people everywhere is very interesting experience and very humbling experience. And it just reminded me of how small I am in a way of I'm just one person. There's this vast ocean of experience and uh, history here happening in this one city. And India has this rich culture that the United States doesn't have as a younger country, at least, you know, the way the United States is now. It's only a couple hundred years old, but India has been in some form for thousands of years. And there's this culture there that's not westernized and it's, it's a very different experience. And there's just a lot of surrender that I learned in that process of just trusting the experience of just going with the flow of like, okay, I'm not going to try to control everything here. I can't, and I'm just going to trust the process. And that was a huge lesson that I learned in India, learning how to surrender and trust the process and go with the flow of things. And this is what I'm talking all about today in this final Niyama, Ishvari Pranadana. And if that wasn't just enough, uh, my driver, the driver that the main driver we had while we were in India, in India, his name was Ishvar. So there you go. That's a name for God or source. Uh, Pranidana is like a prostration or a prayer or a sort of surrender or trust in source, Ishvara. And you can call it science, religion, God, spirituality, the universe. Buddha, Allah, Krishna, Jesus, whatever it is for you is totally valid. You don't have to believe in any one God, but there is something that if we're not surrendering to that thing and not trusting in that thing, what are we trusting in then? What are we putting our faith in? Where are we putting our sort of belief that if I put my attention on this, that will, uh, things will be okay. And there's a sort of greater purpose and bigger picture to it. It might be, if I buy this new thing, if I buy the new phone that comes out in the fall, if I get the new home, or if I get my place decorated this way, or if I have just these right things in the right place, then I will feel at peace and I will have everything in order. And of course, that just doesn't work. And ultimately, what these teachings are offering us is this alternative perspective to say, if I put my faith in something bigger than I can possibly comprehend, the thing that makes these millions of people throughout this, in my experience of India, these millions of people live their lives and everything's just constantly moving. And there's this constant explosion of life and there's music and chanting everywhere and just constant colors everywhere. I happen to be there during the holy festival where they get these packets of colored sand and throw it at everybody. So everybody's just colored all over head to toe. And of course, there's these festivals almost every weekend in India where they're celebrating life and celebrating these different deities and pieces of their history. So all that activity is happening and there's all these millions of processes happening in our bodies right now where your heart's beating and there's millions of viruses inside your body at war with each other and all your blood cells and everything in your immune system keeping you healthy and your heart beating and your blood flowing. So all this constant explosion of life everywhere and this activity everywhere and there's just no way you could control it. You can't keep your attention on, I'm going to beat my heart and I got to breathe at this rate and I've got to manage my work over here and my relationship over there. It's 
just so many things that we can't possibly put our attention on. And the mind can only really hold a few things in its conscious attention at a time. But beyond that, there's this sort of trust of like, you just know your food's going to digest for the most part and 99% of the time if you're healthy. And you just know like if you lay down, eventually you'll fall asleep and that whole sleep process will happen. But you have to let go to allow that to happen. And you know that if you put your work out there and you focus on being of service to others, just like in the Bhagavad Gita teaches, if you focus on the giving and the service to others and not the fruits of your labor, then you will be provided for and there will be fruits, but you can't control how many fruits you do get and how much uh, praise you get or how much success you get. But you can control what you focus on in that limited band of your conscious attention that you can focus on. But beyond that, there requires this massive level of surrender and trust in something and it could be a deity it could be uh, ganesh the remover of obstacles or krishna or jesus or whatever it is for you there's got to be something that you put your trust in and that's what ishvari pranadhan is all about reminding us that we've got to be able to trust something bigger than ourselves so how do we do that how do we put this into practice well, one thing that we can do is make a list of everything that happens in our day. So we can write down like, I do this, I do that, and then separate that list into two columns of things that you can control and things that you can't control. And if you do this, it might only take like 10 minutes, you'll quickly notice that the list of things that you can control is actually very, very small. And the things that you can't control is endless vast, immense. So we focus our attention, our limited bandwidth of what the mind can focus its conscious attention on at a time to the things that we can control. You can control how much water you drink. You can relatively control how much sleep you get, you know, how early you try to go to bed and your daily routine and the turning off the devices at sundown, things like this. You can control how much exercise you get. You can control what information you allow into your mind and your limited attention. It could be spiritual texts. It could be social media and just scrolling. A really sobering fact that I uh, was reading about recently is just three hours of your day, if you spend three hours of your day watching YouTube or scrolling social media or just kind of doing mindless stuff that you don't actually really want to be doing, that adds up to 11 years of your life. And that's around a common range of people uh, using devices three to four hours a day at this point, especially under quarantine right now, where it's people are spending even more time on their devices at home. So 11 years of your life that can be spent distracted and just kind of being pushed and pulled by things that you're not really that interested in. Or you could devote maybe even just 10 minutes of that time to doing a meditation practice of in some way surrendering your time. So this is part of one of the ideas of what meditation practice is and sadhana daily practice is a giving up of your time to say, I'm going to just let go of this five minutes of my day, this 10 minutes, in some cases, this two hours of my day. If you're doing Vipassana meditation or Kundalini yoga practice, sadhana, uh, there's different traditions where it's a couple hours of your day that you're dedicated to just giving up your time to Say, okay, I'm going to devote my time to being a vessel for source to come through me. And I really love the prayer of St. Francis, which you've likely heard of, Lord, make me a vessel of peace. Make me an instrument of peace. And it talks about all the ways that essentially 
that where there are things that are challenging or difficult to choose to embody the the opposite of that. This is again in alignment with the Yoga Sutra teaching of Ishvari Pranadana, where there's challenges or difficulties or obstacles, cultivate the opposite. And this is a prayer, it's a St. Francis prayer. If you haven't looked at it, I highly recommend looking it up. It's it's awesome prayer to essentially make yourself a vessel of peace and a channel to be of service to others. And Deepak Chopra starts his day saying, how may I be of service to others? And a quote he said is, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? What would you have me say? These sort of questions are great to ask in the morning to open up the channel of receptivity of knowing that there's a bigger picture beyond your current challenges and limitations and obstacles and experience that you're a part of and we're all a part of and we're all sort of waves on this big ocean of life and experience and we're working together in some way and we're interconnected in some way underneath all of it. So the more we focus on ourself and our fears, our insecurities, our flaws, our problems, the more disconnected we become from that source because now we're in ego and identity and ego loves to separate and loves to attach to forms of, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm too old. I'm too young. All of these identities that the ego can attach to, to solidify itself, to say, this is who I am. This is all I am. And that's it. And there is some level of that ahamkara, the ego that we do need to engage with life to say, okay, I am, in my case, I'm a yoga teacher. That's what I am. I'm not an electrician. I'm not a mechanic. Those aren't the skills that I was drawn to or have developed, but I am skillful in understanding yoga texts and philosophy and anatomy. And these are things that I've been drawn to and you have your things. So the ego is healthy to that degree where you say, okay, this is what I'm here to do and how I can be of service and what interests me and what lights me up and what brings me to life and why I was born. There's something that really lights me up and draws me to keep living and keep giving and keep learning. And we align with that thing. And then we let go of the attachment to it has to be this way, or even the attachment to I, that's what I am. Right? At one point, I was a musician. That was who I am. I'm a musician. That's all I do is I make music. And there's a certain point where I felt like that identity needed to be let go because it was now so attached to form of it has to look this way and has to be this way. And it was constantly causing struggle and suffering for me that I had to let it go and open up to what's possible next. And that there's different times where we go through that and that's normal. And we all go through these transformations. And mine happened to be on a Saturn return uh, yours might be as well, around age 30, age 60, and age 90. Every 30 years, we have this cycle of transformation and uh, letting go oftentimes. So what we choose to let go to, again, it can be something uh, that's external, something that's material, something that's our identity and attached to form. And if you get this thing, then you'll be happy. If you buy this product, then you'll be happy. Of course, those things are transient and they don't last but they're wonderful in the moment and it's totally awesome to get to experience the pleasures of life and eat good food and go to nice places and, and have nice experiences. But ultimately, uh, what is more meaning and full, meaningful and fulfilling and ultimately connects us more to our source and to each other is how can I be of service and what lights me up to be of service to others? Do you love 
teaching children? Do you love uh, teaching adults? Do you love uh, learning about philosophy? Do you love learning about astrology? Right, whatever it is, you can find a way to make that your life's work. And for me, it was, I loved listening to Alan Watts talks for a long time when I was growing up, I, when I was like uh, 18 to 22 or so, listen to every Alan Watts talk, talk I could find over and over again. And I was a musician and it didn't really relate necessarily to music, but it was just something that lit me up. And I knew that was a direction I wanted to keep exploring. It ultimately led me to my teacher, my first teacher, who was a very similar guy to Helen Watts. And then ultimately to what I'm doing now after many years of trial and error. And basically I get to share things that I find fascinating and correlations and connections I've made through studying religion and spirituality and personal practices and all the practices I've done. So I get to, in some way, uh, give back what I've received and that value. And hopefully you find it valuable, at least remotely as valuable as I found those talks because they were life-changing for me and I really needed those. So I, I hope you find these at least somewhat valuable as well for yourself. Uh, that's not up to me, but what is up to me is that I, I'm trusting the process of like, this is what I feel called to create at this phase of my life. So I'm going to keep doing it and trusting it. And that's an example of Ishvari Pranidhana in action of, I feel what lights me up. I feel where I feel called, where I can be of service, where I've received and what I have now something to give back. And I don't ne necessarily know how it will turn out or what will come of it or if it will be this huge thing. I can't control all that. That's all ego trying to project and trying to control and manage everything. And ultimately, that's what led to me to a lot of suffering as a musician in that role and identity that I was so fixated on. Now, I... I remember <laughs> I first started working with kids and I was like, I would never work with kids. It's just like so weird. I don't like being silly. I don't like being fake. Like I'm so serious and dramatic in my music. And then a few years later, I find myself working with kids and being silly and, you know, doing all the silly kid stuff that people do when they work with kids. And, and then I got to mentor boys and, you know, help them and kids who grew up without a father like I did and got to give back in this way that was really meaningful and a full circle experience. You know, and then just kept progressing. And then I found new opportunities to, to share yoga with kids and then with adults and, and so on. And just kept growing and expanding. And I encourage you to trust that process of unfolding, of surrendering to source to say, what would you have me do today? And it could be the smallest little thing of, you know, wash your car or brush your teeth or make your bed. And then you made your bed and it's like, okay, now what? What would you have me do now? What can I do to be of service? What lights me up here? And it's like, oh, listen to this audiobook or read this text or do your yoga practice. You know, and that's what it was for me for several years of just I knew I wanted to get up and do yoga every day. And again, it was outside of the norm. I didn't know any musicians who thought that was cool. That definitely was not cool. Uh, so I didn't even talk about it with my musician friends. Just like, yeah, you know, I'm going to the gym and uh, but man, this yoga stuff is awesome, you know, in my head. So I just kept doing it. It's just like, I knew I wanted to keep doing that. And it ultimately led me to this. And I'm really happy with what's come of that. And I encourage you to trust that process of listening to that still quiet voice within you. And this was what one of my teachers told me early on that, you know, it's that voice when it's still quiet and calm, and it's still there when you get really quiet. And you know, it's your ego and your stories and whatever else when it's loud and urgent, it's like, you gotta do this, you gotta buy this thing, or you gotta move to this place. Uh, and there's this urgency and sort of uh, panic to it, this, this loudness to it. But if you get really quiet and still, and you sit in meditation and notice your breath for a few minutes, 
what arises then. And the filmmaker, David Lynch, who's also a major proponent of transcendental meditation, he talks about catching the big fish. And essentially, if you want to catch a big fish, he says, you've got to sit on a boat and just wait for a while. And you've got to be really patient. And you can't be like rushing around and, and you can't just rush into uh, fishing and catch a big fish right away. You've got to be patient and let your uh, whatever, the bob, I don't even know anything about fishing, but you got the hook. That's what you need. The hook has got to lower significantly because the bigger fish are towards the bottom. Right? They're not going to be on the shallow surface of things. So if you want to get into those bigger ideas, and he's, he's using the metaphor of fish as like ideas and insights and intuition, they're down towards the bottom. And you've got to give yourself the space and time to sink down deeper beneath the surface and not get stuck on the surface of things and the more shallow. Uh, you're, you're not going to catch the big fish, the big ideas, the big realizations, the insights, those still quiet voices that are moving slowly under the currents that say, go here, go there, do this, make this choice. And you just know. And if you're not sure, sit again in meditation, give it some time, no rush, just sit and listen a little bit deeper. Maybe give yourself a little more time in meditation, do something like yin yoga or acupuncture or massage or something that really gets you down in the parasympathetic mode, the rest and digest mode and those alpha brain waves where you can have those clear insights. So the beta brain waves, the more active alert state, you're not going to hear those things. You're going to hear ideas and ego and, and all these sort of surface things. But if you give yourself the time to sink a little deeper, you'll find more of those deeper insights. So I hope this is helpful for you and gives you some perspective on how to work with this Niyama Ishvari Pranadana, which I think is really, really essential to yoga. And if you could only pick one practice out of all the yamas and niyamas I've shared about here, it's a hard thing for me to pick, but this might be one of them because if you focus on this first, all the other ones will come into place. So if you focus on listening to source, you're less likely to hurt people. You're less likely to want to lie to people and steal from people. You're less likely to waste your energy and grasp onto things. You're more likely to want to have a clean environment and clean mind and body. You're more likely to find contentment and ease if you trust in source and you take this time each day to just listen to source. You're more likely to uh, be willing to be disciplined and have tapas and be able to commit to things if you're willing to surrender to source. And you're more likely to be self-aware because you're listening to that inner knowing and you get into the witnessing awareness that can observe your body, mind, and breath and notice the fluctuations of the monkey mind and still listen to that deeper insight. And so you can practice Svadhyaya, self-awareness. So this has been the overview. We've gotten through all of the yamas and niyamas. It's been a really fun journey. And if you want to get a free guide where I've laid out all this stuff, you can go to quietmind.yoga slash eight limbs. Just a reference for you. It's totally free PDF. It's the number eight, the word limbs. There's a link in the show notes. And we'll continue next week talking about the next part of the eight limbs of yoga, which is asana or posture. I'll also be interspersing some episodes about yoga teacher training and what I do in my teacher training and what you can learn from it and how you can apply it to your teacher training, whether you do it with me or someone else. I've been getting a lot of questions recently about things to do with people's teacher trainings. What do you do if you have a bad teacher training and you're not happy with it and you feel like something's amiss? 
I'll be addressing things like that. If you have any particular questions, send me a message, jeremy at quietmind.yoga is my email address, or on Instagram at jeremy.quietmind. I'd love to hear from you if you're enjoying this series, if there's something you want to learn more about yoga. I see the anatomy episodes very popular. I will do more anatomy episodes in the future. And if there's anything you'd like to see, just let me know. And please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review in Apple Podcasts. All right, hope you have a great rest of your day and look forward to sharing more soon.